Guys, if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, you cannot go past TMJ Apparel, premium athletic culture goods from our world famous oversized tees to men's workout apparel to women's active wear to training accessories, including the world's best lifting straps, lifting belts, knee sleeves, elbow sleeves and bags to athletic inspired casual wear you cannot go past tmj apparel and we have an exclusive offer for listeners of the fitness times business podcast you can score yourself 20 percent off the entire range of tmj apparel when you shop online at massivejoes.com and use the exclusive code fxb upon checkout that is going to get you 20 percent off the entire line of tmj apparel and workout accessories fxb is the code make the most of it this is one incredible episode of the fitness times business podcast that you guys have coming your way so much so that we have decided to split it into two parts it's a long episode uh it goes for almost two hours so we split it into part one which goes for just under an hour and part two uh which also goes for just under an hour part one is live right now uh part two is going to go live in a week's time let's dive straight in part one vision action and passion with special guest tony doherty let's get down to business thanks for coming out tonight i wrote me a manual a step-by-step booklet for you to get oh, I make money moves. You can't see me, my time is now. What up, what up, what up, guys? Welcome back to the Fitness Times Business Podcast, the show created to provide you with the practical and strategic advice to help you level up in fitness, business, your career, your relationships, and your life. My name is Joseph Mansell. I am your host, and I have sitting across from me one of the most requested guests ever for the Fitness Times Business Podcast. Welcome to the show, Tony Doherty. Well, it's great to be here, Joseph, and it's uh, quite flattering to know that I've been uh, requested at all, let alone one of the most requested. That's fantastic. Many, whenever I put up uh, like a Q&A on Instagram or I ask for people, who do you want to see on the podcast? Your name is in there multiple times, uh, every single time. Uh, and so I'm, I'm super excited to have you here. I'm very grateful to have you here because you're one of the busiest men that I know. Um, so for you to give up some of your time to come on this podcast means the world to me, and I know it means a lot to the listeners as well. So thank you. Well, thanks, Joe. Um, as I said to you earlier, I'm an open book. You know, I'm always happy to be honest and to share um, everything from my experience so that people can genuinely learn from it. And I'm not going to put myself up on a pedestal because I've been a, a screw up at times, you know, and I think that people need to know that. So, um, you know, you can ask me anything at all. I hope that people can take something from this and learn. And I'm also honored to be here, mate. I'm a big fan of your work. And, uh, you. you know, we all have people we look up to and generally they're people that are older than themselves, but you're younger than me and I look up to you. I really do. So I think you've created something really, really special. And, uh, Mate, I've been looking forward to this day. So giving up time to do this is not a give up. It's an investment for both of us. So thank you. Yeah, 100%. All right. You just said you didn't want to put yourself up on a pedestal, so I'll do that for you. Uh, but where I want to take this podcast, you know, obviously you're um, you're no stranger to podcasts. You've done a lot of them in the past um, and a lot of them I've listened to in the past. And I know that a lot of the podcasts where you've been a guest, the interviewer has kind of asked you to tell your origin story and explain, you know, how do gym came about, how the Arnold Sports Festival came about, how the Pro League came about, so on and so forth. I think a lot of the listeners already know or have listened to podcasts that you've done where you've 
explain that. So what I want to do is I want to give you, I want to put you up on a pedestal. I want to give you that little elevator pitch for, for the listeners and the viewers who, who perhaps don't know all of the different bits and pieces that make up Tony Doherty. But then I really want to take a deep dive into your business journey. This is the Fitness Times Business Podcast. And I personally don't know anybody who has accomplished more in the business of fitness than yourself. Um, and I think, you know, I really want to try and extract as much value as possible from your journey um, that has been 40 plus years uh, for, for the listeners and the viewers. So to begin, Tony Doherty, obviously creator, founder of Doherty's Gym, the actual gyms, uh, creator of the Doherty's Gym brand in particular, which really kind of stands alone as one of the most world-renowned brands in the fitness space, definitely in the bodybuilding space. You're the president of the IFBB Pro League Australia um, and head promoter. And obviously you run the entire organization here in Australia, which is a arm of the NPC and the IFBB Pro League all kind of pulled together in, in, in one. Uh, you are the promoter for the Arnold Sports Festival Australia. Uh, and before the Arnold Sports Festival, it was the Arnold Classic Australia. Before that, it was FitEx. Before that, it was the Australian Grand Prix. You are effectively, you know, a lot of people refer to you as the godfather of bodybuilding in Australia. And I think that's a very appropriate term. Uh, you're a public speaker, obviously. MC, um, you you MC all of the shows. I've uh, had the incredible opportunity to be taught how to MC by you, and I get to stand alongside you at at, uh, at a number of different shows and kind of share that stage with you, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, you're also a father of four, uh, three girls, one boy, uh, and you know, just from a from a personal perspective, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, you and I have a, a very unique relationship. Uh, but from a personal perspective, you're one of my, uh, not just business mentors, but definitely personal development mentors as well. Uh, so you've got a whole lot going on and you have accomplished a whole lot. And as I mentioned in, in, the, in the business space of fitness, I personally don't know anybody who has accomplished as much as you have over the 40 years that you've been doing this. So that's your elevator pitch. Have I missed anything? No, no I think you pretty much <laughs> summed it up. You know, it's, it's been a hell of a ride, Joseph. And, yeah, and, I uh, bet when you hear it, it'll put like that, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes, um, in fact, flying over here, I thought, oh, where are we going to go with this? And I was thinking about, you know, the bodybuilding space and, and – uh, you know, how long I've been doing it and the places I've appeared. And I was thinking, has anyone else in Australia kind of done all that stuff? No. You know, done all the interviews at the Olympia and emceed and interviewed Arnold all over the world, you know, like, and that stuff we can touch on here. We've interviewed him in, in six continents and done press conferences. Yeah. In the US and stuff that even I couldn't have thought up. So, well, you emceed the Arnold Columbus. Yeah, Arnold, yeah, twice US. I did Columbus, um, yep. and I'd still be doing it if if COVID hadn't of course, hit. Yeah, um, yeah. I've emceed in Brazil and South Africa, mm -hmm. and done uh, you know press conferences in 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 Spain and uh, uh, the one we did in Hong Kong. So every continent I've emceed, mm. <laughs> and an Arnold Sports Festival. Yeah, 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 unreal. And it's you know it's very easy to to see all the the highlights and see all the achievements and kind of you know and and put you on a pedestal. And I know that you're you really don't like that um, because there's a lot more depth to your journey than just the highlight reel. Um, and that's really what I, what I want to take a deep dive into because I think that's where we can extract a lot of value. So I want to start with, you started 
pretty much everything that you do from the ground up, from ground zero. You started Doherty's yep. Gym with an idea and a vision. You started the Doherty's Gym brand with an idea and a vision. You started, you know, the, you're the godfather of bodybuilding, but you started bringing bodybuilding to Australia through the Australian Grand Prix before there was Expos, before there was the Arnold. We're talking 20 years ago with an idea and a vision. And I know a lot of the listeners of this show, especially when they're kind of just getting started and they have just an idea, just a vision, and nobody else can see it but them. How do you go about pursuing a vision that nobody else can see and having the guts and the courage to back yourself and go, you know what, it doesn't matter that nobody else believes what I believe and nobody else can see what I can see, I'm going to have a red hot crack. You know, I think part of that comes from starting with with nothing and having nothing handed to you because there, you don't have another choice. There is no other way. But I think, you know, you, you kept saying vision. And I have these little clusters of three words for different things, but one of them I always uh, refer to is, is the three words that you really need if you're going to make something work, which is vision, passion, and action. Now, it's one thing to have a vision. And people say, you want to have a great body. I want to have a gym empire. I want to, you know, uh, be a movie star, whatever. And we all have these big dreams. You know, when you're a kid, everyone wanted to be an astronaut, for example. But how many people do you know that are astronauts? So it's one thing to have a vision. But a vision can be really delusional if you don't have passion. And this is where it sorts out, you know, if you like, the men from the boys. Because if you don't have a passion for something, then you're never going to get through the tough days. You're never going to get through the self-doubt. You're never going to get through the days where you get knocked down and nobody understands your vision. So for your vision to be real and you say, well, what, what about when no one else understands it? That's where passion comes in, Joe, because if you don't have passion for something, you're going to get eaten alive. And you may last for a little while, longer than you thought, and then you get up one day and you just go, this is too hard. But if you've got passion, like something burning inside that says, I need this like I need oxygen. Fuck, I, I, I can't. I, I can't get through this life unless I just keep going with this vision, mm-hmm. even if I fail. Mm-hmm. And it's not about always succeeding and winning. Sometimes that can take forever. But if, if you've got this passion inside that, you know, that it wakes you up in the morning mm-hmm. and it keeps you awake at night and you forget to eat and you're just like nuts about what you're doing, that's that's the second part of vision. Because just vision on its own is, God, it can be so delusional. People tell you shit all the time, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And you look at them and go, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, you can't do it. And then I think the I think, last one's action. I think with with passion, one of the things that I've noticed is it's it's almost the difference of saying I'd like to versus I must. Right? Or I need like to. to. It's I'd like or, to or I need to. Yeah. I'd like to is is, you know, vision without passion. It's kind of like, yeah, it would be nice to right, own my own this, gym or right, to build my where, own brand. Where I go about people with vision all the time. I hear everyone wants to do everything. Everyone, shit, I can tell you 10 things I'd love to do, but I'm not going to do them because yeah. I, I don't have the passion for it or the patience for it or whatever else. But when you got that together, and then the third part is action. So you can have vision and you can have passion, but if you aren't will, willing to work your ass off and to eat dirt and to go through all the hard times that it takes to get there, then your vision and passion don't add up to anything. So you need those three things, I guess, in equal parts. You need vision, you need passion, and you need action. Action means you've got to get up and go to work. There's no other choice, even when it doesn't make sense, even when other people think you're a fool, even when your family, your friends, and everyone around you doubts your vision and your passion, you still get up and go, I'm just going to go anyway. Mm-hmm. 
right? And that's action. Action is doing the little things every day that you can do. And I think I think that's that's a formula that I've kind of stuck by. Do you think action can kind of almost overflow into uh, one of the things that I'm big on is control your controllables. And the four controllables that I kind of always anchor back into are my actions. So what what I can do, what I can execute on, what I can, you know, what I can move forward on each and every day. My responses, which is how I respond to things that happen that are outside of my control. My effort, how much I'm willing to put in the work and then my attitude. Am I going to continue to have an optimistic, positive attitude or am I going to be down in the dumps and feel sorry for myself and all that sort of stuff? Do you feel like controlling your controllables is part of that recipe as well? Vision, passion, action, responses, effort, attitude. Well, I think it all flows into that for sure. Yeah. You know, but I think about controlling your responses and your when you talk about attitude. Yeah. Like attitude's everything. I was saying that, you know, um, attitude will always de- determine your outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just too easy with social media and this kind of softness that people have that when you have a down day or you're a bit flat or you're just not at your best, you have to fucking tell everyone. You have to share out and just – come on, it's please. Like a victim mentality, yeah, right? Yeah, I hate it. Honestly, who's like, got Who's got the bigger sob story? Right. And, and, and to me, part of, part of strength is not letting people know you've had a bad day. That's sometimes how you survive by getting home and going, well – I had an absolute shit show of a day, but no one else would have known. I, I managed to hold it in. But, well, yeah, but you've got to express your emotions, eh, to a point. Mm. And there've got to be some people you can share things with when you're really down. You've got to have a mate or a friend or someone you trust to say, hey, I'm not I'm not holding up too good. This is yeah. different. So, you know, if you're suffering some kind of mental thing, you've got to talk to someone, sure. Mm. Just because you have a shitty day, you haven't got to be a victim. You've got to tell the world, oh, poor me, look at me, because... People just see it as a weakness at the end of the day. They take something from you by you sharing that. So I think sometimes you just got to have some grit, you know, some old hardcore John Wayne, Clint Eastwood grit. Yeah, we just knuckle down. You go, you know what? Everyone's I always say this at my seminars and podcasts wherever I appear. Um, everyone's going through something. Yeah. You know, you're not special. And I think people said, oh, but me, 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 I, I, can, I, can someone give me a little pat on the back? I, don't want, I never wanted a pat on the back or a little, a little pep up. Oh, fuck that. Mm. You know, I want to wake up like a savage every day, just like a vicious animal. But well, what the hell is that guy? What's he got? You know, and, and, that, and that becomes a little bit of a bluff too because then people say, shit, he's never down. Of course I'm down. I have some day men who don't want to leave the house. And I talk to people that have depression and have, you know, um, real uh, deliberating anxiety and they can't can't do anything. I'm like, we all got a little bit of that, but I make a choice to leave the house no matter what. I've never had a day off um, feeling sorry for myself in my whole life. And I've been through pretty tough times, you know, going through um, a, a breakdown of a marriage and divorce and leaving your children in the house you built and cancelling an expo and having a business go bad and, you know, you want to hide from the world, but you don't. You get up and you just you know, put your pants on and, you know, you know, do your hair and have a coffee and just go bang. Control bang. your controllables. Yeah, That's man. all you I, can I just ever do, right? Yeah, and some of it's, yeah, it's not always real, but it doesn't have to be real. Sometimes you're putting on a show. You know, if you choose to be in a public space and to be a leader and to be this people that this person that inspires others, then you can't be boo hoo hoo. Just no, yeah. no. It's something. It's it, it's interesting you mentioned that actually because it's something that I have been working on in my personal development, and I um, work with a clinical psychologist who I see every six to eight weeks. And one of the things we've been working on is 
how I present as a leader versus how I go through things that I'm going through personally and almost kind of segregating the two. Whereas like, I don't need to, when, I, when I'm in, when I'm in the space where I'm being a leader and I'm in the public eye and you know, I, it's important that I'm positive and I'm optimistic and I'm, you know, never give up grit, resilience, perseverance, and all those sorts of traits of a good leader. That's where I need to be in that space. But I can also at the same time hold in my personal space going through really difficult shit and struggling with experiencing negative emotions and uh, working through those emotions and understanding that not every day is going to be a fucking win on the board. There's going to be days, like you say, where you just don't even want to get out of the house because everything feels so heavy. And just being able to kind of hold those two at the same time. And I think that kind of ties into, you know, like sometimes you don't need to share your personal struggles publicly. No, you know, and, look, and there's been times where I've known you've been going through some shit and I've yeah. called you a, yep. as a brother. Yes. Not not as, as your boss partner or anything else, but just, hey, brother, I know, just drop the guard for a minute, what's up? Yeah, yeah and that's separate. But that's not something we recorded and put online. That's right. You know, and I always think of you like this massive Joe. That's your brand and that's your persona and that's this animal that I'm sitting here. Mm. And it's Joseph. Yes. And I like it that I actually pull myself up when I call you Joe in the wrong context or Joseph in the wrong <laughs> context because in my mind it's kind of like two and I think you just articulated that really well. Mm. I don't really have another name for me but I guess my other one's Dad. You know, there's there's this animal that everyone sees and then there's this big softy. You know, that, that that's no one's business. 100%. Yeah, and you're, it, it's something that, you know, like I've noticed you're very conscious of is your personal life where you are dad, where you're a father, um, you, you guard very closely. Is that intentional? I, I guess unintentionally intentional. Okay. So a lot of my psyche and I... I've never been to a psychologist, but I've been thinking about it. I've just got to find the right one because it might take a while. But I've always <laughs> like regarded myself as like a bit of a bush psychologist because I try and learn as much as I can about people and process, you know, people's emotions, everything else. So when you look at yourself, it's a little bit different because you're putting yourself under a microscope and you've got to have some introspection with that, which I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> Unintentionally, intentionally. Keeping your yeah yeah okay where I was going life, with that private. was one there's that but I also am a big believer that your private life has a title it's called your private life yeah. and too many people particularly with social media just have to go on and talk about their relationships mm -hmm. their ups and downs their trials and tribulations and it's back to that victim mentality and and it's also you've got to guard it because you know people see someone winning mm -hmm. they just want to have a shot at you and I I never want to have my private life. Um, to be out there for people to to talk about, take to know about, at, to yeah. take shots at, or just it's none of their fucking business. Yeah. And and so I do guard that fairly well. And I, I just think with kids that's a really sacred thing. So mm. just don't put yourself in that position. And, and you know, if you've got a brand and a persona that's your, your public thing, mm. it, it's mostly you anyway. So just stick with that. Yeah. yeah. So I think so. I want to discuss patience in your business journey, in your, well, in your life's journey, really. Because it's one thing to have the vision, the passion, the action, control your controllables. A lot of the time, a piece of that recipe is just doing that for long enough 
to get the results that you're trying to get. And an inherent part of that is having patience in the process. So committing to the process, committing to the journey, having the vision, having the passion, chipping away each and every day, controlling the controllables each and every day, and not doing it for a month and then giving up because you haven't got the result you wanted to get, or a year, or five years, or 10 years, is just keep going until you get what you're trying to get. And one of the things that I've noticed specifically with my generation and even generations younger than mine is this lack of patience. It's just like, you know what, I'm I'm willing to commit to the journey for six months. And then if I'm not where I need to be, then I'm going to pivot or I'm going to change direction or I'm going to do do something else. And it's just like, man, if you just stuck in there for another six months or another six months or a year or two years or five years or however fucking long it took to get where you were trying to go, eventually you'd get there. And I think in your journey, a couple of things that popped to mind for me with how you've been able to really, really kind of balance patience with ambition. The first one is the opportunity around the Arnold Classic Australia that turned into the Arnold Sports Festival Australia. And just how long you were running bodybuilding shows and Grand Prix and Expos and FedEx and, you know, all these different bits and pieces until finally the door opened for Arnold to go, you know what, I want to take the sports festival, the classic back then internationally. And then the other one is with the IFBB Pro League in Australia and just almost 20 years, Tony, of running shows under the umbrella of the past promoters and not being able to have the control that you wanted to have, knowing that it was right, like at some point you were going to get it, right? At some point it was right there. You didn't know how long it was going to take or what pieces needed to fall into place to allow the door to open, but you knew it was there. How do you balance that super long-term patience with the short-term ambition of trying to achieve big goals? Well, I guess some of that's come with experience because I don't think you're born with patience. Mm-hmm. I think you get better at it. You know, and so if I go through all those things, so I think about the gym and the brand I built with that. So when I started the gym and without guys just going through the whole horror story of sleeping on couches for a year and having nothing and all the the rest of it. But when you've got nothing and you've got – that's all you've got is, is your patience and your grit. Mm-hmm. So when I started out in the gym industry, everyone had more money than me. Yes. Everyone had more education – with me because I didn't finish school. I, I wasn't stupid or dumb. I did, didn't like school teachers and authority and I didn't like the way the education system was structured. I knew I'd just learn more going to work. So I knew that it was never an issue for me. Um, but when you start out like a brand or a gym or whatever you're doing with nothing, then you've got to look at what do you have. And I thought, well, everyone's got more money than me. Everyone's got more ambition than me. Everyone's got more experience with me. But I don't know if they can handle tough times like I can. So I'm just going to hang in there. So some other gym owner, for example, might have had a, a tough week and go, oh, I didn't know I wasn't going to get wages this week. So I go, I won't get wages for a year. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll just hustle on the side, do whatever the hell I have to do to keep the doors open. And in the early days, I'd do that. I'd do security at nightclubs, I'd do debt collecting, I'd do, you know, wh- whatever I had to do, um, hustling on the side to keep the doors open because the gym couldn't afford a wage. 
and someone else would be in the gym going, oh, I didn't know I'd have to go through that. I, you know, I thought I was going to get, a, you know, a, a solid wage and a job out of this. So they'd give up. Mm. And then it might be um, that they didn't know they'd have to spend the weekends cleaning or, or, or scrub out toilets or have a staff member not show up and have to do a night shift after they've done a day shift and all that. And I thought, well, I can do all that sort of stuff. Mm. So it's outlasting. And you find that weaker people essentially just drop off. They just go, oh, I didn't sign up for this shit. I'm like, I did. Give me more. Bring it on. And that just made me stronger and tougher. So then the lessons I learned from that, you know, I put into the bodybuilding world. And with, um, well, there's two parts. As I said, with, with the Expos and the Arnold Classic, um, the first time I went to the Arnold Classic it was like in 1990 and 91. And I remember walk, walking in there and I met Jim Lorimer. And uh, I got to ask him a question. Everyone else was like, oh, you know, um, who, who, what celebrity wrestlers are coming? How do we get a picture with so-and-so? I'm like, when do you start work on next year's event? That was my only question. And he goes, Monday morning. And this guy, he started the Arnold Classic when he was 60. He just died uh, a few months ago at 96. Started at 60. The biggest sports um, and fitness expo in the world, the biggest sports festival in the world as far as numbers of athletes and delegates and attendees and all that sort of thing. Started when everyone else was retiring. So I drew a lot from Jim. We kind of clicked. But I remember I walked out of that event that year and said, I'm going to bring that to Australia one day or something just like that, mm. just as big, just as good. No idea how. And that was that was 1991. Yeah, yeah. And the first Arnold was? Uh, 19, my one, yes. uh, 2015. Right? And I also said, I remember sitting there watching the Arnold Classic and Reg Park was the MC. And I remember I was flying back from Columbus to Los Angeles and uh, the long journey home, and I met Reg Park on the plane, who was Arnold's idol and hero. And he was uh, the voice in Pumping Iron where you hear him say, please welcome the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I idolised Reg Park, and he was the MC. I remember getting off that plane, I go, I'm going to MC the Arnold, Arnold Classic in Columbus, Ohio one day. Don't know how, don't know when. It was 1991. First time I MC'd it was 2018. So... What's 27 that? years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I went every year that I could and I watched and I learned and I waited. And so you say, well, how do you do that? How do you maintain that patience? Mm -hmm. So my point was when I met Jim Lorimer that time and he says Monday morning, I go, I'm an idiot. I'm just like 20-something years old and I'm partying and yeah. doing all the dumb shit. I'm not ready for that kind of commitment. But when I am, I know that's what I have to apply. I have to be able to work long and hard to be able to do that. I'm not mature enough. But I still want to do it. But Let's get everything else in a row. So it took me a few years to learn that kind of resilience and patience and work ethic to be able to do that. Yeah. But I just never gave in on it. I just knew that, you know, every year that it doesn't happen means I'm gonna, I've got another year to get better at my craft, yeah. you know. So then, um, you know, we built the Australian Pro Grand Prix and that was, um, that was kind of in response that I couldn't take over the amateurs and I had a great relationship with the Pro League. And I said, well, how about if we bring an Australian uh, Pro Show here? And then the, the old IFBB ran in Sydney with, oh, you can do that, but we'll run the amateurs. I'm like, yeah, yeah, fine. And that gave me a chance to establish myself in the pro bodybuilding world and build the most popular show in the world outside of the Olympia and the Arnold, the third longest running show as it turned out. Mm. We did it for 20 years when all the other shows dropped off because I found um, that I could do stuff no one else could do as far as looking after the athletes. Everyone's heard the story, you know, feeding them, getting them service departments, picking them up at the airport, all the stuff that my travels – taught me that travelling with our Australian um, pros that 
that bodybuilders didn't get anywhere else in the world except in Columbus and at the Olympia. I thought, well, I can do that. I don't have a big budget, but surely I can rent a van and pick people up at the airport, just little things. So I kept going with with that um, because I thought that's going to give me keep me relevant, it's going to integrate me into the pro league so that when I get a chance to take over, I'm the only choice. And then I started the the FedEx Expo and this is when Arnold was still governor and I said, well, so I always said that I'll do a pro show first and we'll get some, you know, some sponsors outside, then we'll move into the the bigger area and we had to wait for the Melbourne Convention Centre to open. A whole lot of little things had to fall in place. So um, 2010, I think, we did the first pro show at the plenary theatre and we just had like sponsors booths out on the concourse. And then 2011 was the first um, uh, FedEx and that was going to be a multi-sport festival, basically um, a, a smaller version of the Arnold Classic I'd been to now so many times in Columbus. But I'd watched that grow from a bodybuilding show to then powerlifting and martial arts and so we just kind of did that on, on a smaller scale. But what – nobody kind of understood what I was doing was I was practising to do an Arnold Classic, an Arnold Sports Festival. And um, I'm like, well, Arnold hasn't gone worldwide yet, but I can smell it, you know. He's getting to the end of being governor. So when he finished being governor, he said, okay, and this was in 2011 when I'd done my first um, FedEx, he said, we're going to take the Arnold Classic worldwide. We're going to be in every continent. I'm like, okay. I wonder which one he's going to do first. So he chose Spain because that's where he'd shot um, Conan the Barbarian, which was his breakout film, and he wanted to shoot in Madrid because he had a great affinity for them. And that's where the IFBB old amateur league was based, so it all kind of made sense. And did that one, and he said, okay, the next one, the next content we're going to take over is going to be South America, and we've chosen Brazil. So I'm watching that carefully, you know, and and so on. It was now a couple of years later, and I guess it was 20... I want to say 2014 um, when he did the Arnold Classic in Brazil or maybe it was 15, sorry, it was 13. And um, he said, okay, the next continent we're going to take over is Australia. And someone sent me like a, I don't know, a YouTube clip because it wasn't Instagram and everything live at the time. And so I said, he really said that? I go, fuck, I think I'm ready. So all that time I'd been building it to be closer and closer to that. Also strategically from day one when I started the Australian Pro back in 2001, I put it on immediately after Arnold Columbus because all the athletes leads were in shape. You know, they'd already made good money. What's another week to come Keep out going. to Australia? Yep. So I thought, well, if ever – this is how long this went on. This was 20 years in the making, you know, where I'm thinking, well, when I finally do get the Arnold Classic, I can just piggyback off the Arnold Classic USA because they get the best lineup outside of the Olympia. And at that stage, the Olympia had the Grand Prix Tour in Europe. So I can't do that, but I can do that. Focus on what you can do. So – um, when Arnold said he was going to come to Australia, I'm like, I've done everything now in my power that if he goes to, and I knew who he'd go to, he'd, I knew he'd go to a publicist he had in Australia, which I'd now employed as my publicist. I knew he'd go to Jim Mannion, who I still have and have always had a, a wonderful relationship with with the Pro League. He gave me my shot here and backed me when all the, you know, everything happened. Um, with the split, and and there was someone else. Anyway, I thought they're the three people that Arnold's probably going to go to. Yeah. So I put myself in a position where that when of all people, when Arnold Schwarzenegger looked at Australia, only one name was going to come up. Tony Doherty. Yeah. So that didn't. Ha- it wasn't like oh, you got lucky. I didn't get lucky. Mm. I worked my ass off for fifteen solid years so that when I got my shot, and every year I didn't get that shot, Joe. I worked even harder. To go. Okay, I've got another year to make sure no one else's name gets mentioned. Like. 
at one stage there would have been three names and then two. And then for the last two years it was like, I know I'm the guy, but if he doesn't do it this year, I've got another year to get even better at this craft and to get more sports involved and to get more government, you know, stuff going on and get better at um, public speaking, to get better at media, mainstream media, to get all this sort of stuff so that when he looks at Australia. So then when he was in Brazil and he said the next concert, I'm literally sitting there waiting for the phone to ring. I'm like, come on, ring, ring. Every time the phone <laughs> rang, well, that's Arnold's office. It wasn't that, quite that simple, but yeah. th- th- that's how it came about. And that's the kind of patience it takes. Now, if I had given up, or just gone, oh, this is too hard, someone else would have got my shot. And that would have, to me, that's the worst. You know, dying with regret and someone else taking your shot because you were too weak to stick it out, they're they're the two things that I I don't know if I could deal with ever. A couple of things I take from that story um, and how this has kind of all played out. The, The first one is the incredible period of time from when you first met Lorimer in 1991 to saying, I'm going to run this in Australia. It was 25 years, right? From 91 to 2014 is 25 years. Uh, That sort of patience is unbelievable, first and foremost. And I think that's really important for the listeners and the viewers to understand how long a period of time, because most people don't think past two years. You know, if you've got a five-year vision, that's impressive. If you've got a 10-year vision, you're fucking in the 1%. 25-year vision is just unheard of. That's what it takes. The second thing is just businesses, and this is something that that I'm learning and I'm I'm still very much a spring chicken in the business world, but business is the ultimate game of survivor. It really is who can just outlast the longest. Who can continue to keep going? Who can continue to just put one foot in front of the other when people on your left and your right are going, nah, I'm out. I'm waving the white flag. That's enough for me. I've reached the limit where I'm I'm checking out of this one. And you just go, well, I'm just going to take one more step. And then I'm going to take one more step. And I'm going to take one more step until I'm the last fucking person. I'm going to take one more step until the only person who's getting a phone call is Tony Doherty. Yeah, um, but I, I think that sometimes I've known that's all I've got, yeah. Joe. As I said, I learned that when I started out in the gym industry, everybody had more. Yeah. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any education. I didn't have any hype. I didn't have a big name. I was just a kid from the bush, mm. right, with this kind of fighting spirit. And I'm like, you know, I think part of it, the journey is to, as you said, people beside you, people that have tried to take you out, they fall down, they wave white flag. People go, oh, that must be... You know, good. I don't give a fuck. I, I don't look at them. They don't exist to me. I'm like, what? If that was. Pff, I've got to go forward. And what? What the listeners need to know. Something as you said, you just take one step forward. You take one step forward. What you missed is you take two steps back. Sometimes you take 100%. one step forward, then you take three steps back. You go, shit. I'm where I was four years ago. That failed. That failed. That failed. Reset. And you've got to be like that Terminator. You just got to get up and just and forward you go, and you get knocked down. And this is, I just think people give up too easy. You don't been yeah. knocked down, burned at the stake. I mean, like people are always taking their shot. But if you, it, I, I just made my mind up that no one or no thing or no event was going to stop me from doing what I wanted to do. And I didn't have to explain it to anyone. And sometimes that can be your biggest enemy is trying to justify and explain it to everyone around you. Just like, you're with me or you're not. I'm going that way. Anyone coming? And I still do that. I go into my office and I'll come up with some crazy idea of the next thing I'm going to do, you know. And yeah, I remember when I 
first that I was going to do a, a, a pro show and then a fitness expo and then the Arnold. And my poor dad, I'm looking and go, Dad, I've got this idea, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and eventually he's like, well, you've had a few wins in a row, son. I'm in. Yeah. I'm like, because if you're not, I'm, I'm going forward anyway, but I need I need you to be part of the team. He goes, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm in. And you have a couple of people in your life like that who just go, his madness normally wins, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll take that side, you know. And, and it was like when we did the pro league. You know, and we got this opportunity. And that, that was one of the hardest things, Joseph, because with the old league, obviously I was doing a lot of the stuff behind the scenes. I was trying to speed the judging up. I was trying to get the shows to run on time, trying to get the shows to start on time. And time and time again I got told, mind your business, sit back, this is how we do things. You know, we people love having wedding tables at, at shows. They don't want auditoriums. They don't want excitement. They don't want fireworks and all that hype MC, they just want to have a break in between the divisions, all this shit. Like, and I knew better. And I knew the athletes weren't getting treated right. But why don't you just walk away and start your own thing? I go, because that would be death and it would fail. What I have to do is stick to the course until I get my shot. And then when it all happened, everyone goes, geez, you guys did so much so quick. You were so good at this and you thought up this. I said, I've been thinking about this shit for 20 years, about everyone you know, getting a, a medal when they competed, about – um, sponsors being looked after, about the audience being entertained, about starting and finishing on time and having integrity with your audience so that someone doesn't go along to some show. And I know it's still happening, not just with that old federation but some of the other federations where they finish at 11 o'clock and midnight and someone goes to see little Joseph compete and they go, oh, yes, our boy, we've watched him eat all that tuna and, you know, oh, we love him, he's going to win. And then it gets to 11 o'clock at night, you get two call-outs, you don't win, they go, we love you, Joe, but we're never, ever, ever going to go do that again. Yeah. So, you know, at my show, I'll get up and I'll say, hey, everyone, if uh, if you're just wondering when we're going to finish, we're going to finish 6 o'clock on the dot, book yourself a table, you'll be in the restaurant, I promise you. And I get mad if it's two minutes. You've seen me. You've seen Bro, my run You finish on time, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but, and, and some of the bigger shows, we've got two, yeah. 300 competitors. Yeah. I'm saying, we're finish at yeah. six. It's like three past six. I'm failed, yeah. failed. Yeah. I'm nuts. But um, so people say. I remember, I just have to just diverge real quick because I remember the last, it was like the last show or the show before that we did in Adelaide. And um, as you know, for, for our shows here in South Australia, I have the run sheet that I share with all the athletes. And it's down to the minute. It's like 107 will be this division, 111, 113, 117. And I remember you saw it at the last show and you were like, Joseph, um, just be careful with doing that because you might, you know, the athletes will be ready at certain times. And if we're running forwards or backwards or, you know, whatever, you might kind of confuse them. And I was like, Tony, I learned that from you. <laughs> and we, we, every single show, it's, you know, 117, that division is on. You know, and there's just, there's no, there's no ifs, ands or buts about it. That was something that, you know, when you brought me on as a promoter uh, and you took over the IFBB Pro League, that was just a non-negotiable. It's like, we will, we will not run late. Won't happen. Won't happen. Can't happen. And, anyway, and what sorry. I was saying with it, yeah, but when we did that takeover, everyone's, a lot of people were really surprised about how quick it all happened. Yeah. It didn't happen quickly. Yeah. It's been happening in here for 20 freaking years where I've been taking notes, yeah. not being able to take prisons, but taking a lot of notes going, when I get my shot, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to I'm going to make bodybuilding great again, you know, and, and I, 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 it's burning inside me and I won't walk away because then I won't get my shot. And I've seen people do this in the bodybuilding world where they just couldn't handle it and they quit and they walked away and become irrelevant, went and started up some shit federation. I knew where the strength was and where it was going and never questioned it. But when we got that shot, I'd already chosen to have a promoter in each state and to make them a partner because in the old federation they wouldn't do that. 
they were greedy. So they'd have someone in Queensland, for example, do all the work and then wouldn't get rewarded. I'm like, there's enough for everyone, all right? So I'm going to pick a partner in each state and um, I'm going to say, this is how we do things. This is this is our agenda. This is this is. Are you in or not? And you were the easiest choice. And Mark Gretsch in, in Sydney was the easy choice. And John in Queensland was the easy choice because they were guys who behind the scenes for years have been saying, Tony, when you get your shot, please call me because we can't be a part of this way things are done anymore because of our passion and love for the sport. And that's what we've all got. So um, that's just another thing of patience. You know, we're, Joe, I used to sit at those shows in Sydney. Sometimes I'd be on the microphone getting told to say and do things that I knew were wrong. But how do you sit there and be a part of that? Okay, because there's a big picture and a long game. And this long game involves me having to play that role as much as I hate it, as much as I hate myself doing it. If I don't, you guys are never going to see the light, you know, the real light. Just took a long time. You know, but I can't quit. I just, I don't know. It's just always been, it's, it's, I, guess, I guess it's my only real strength. I can't quit. I mm. won't quit. There's a, a, a saying that goes something along the lines of success is when preparation meets opportunity. And I think that this is a really common theme across um, both what you just kind of uh, ran through with the Arnold Sports Festival, the Pro League Australia, and just this incredible patience over decades was that, you you weren't just – it's very easy to fall into the trap of just being patient not doing anything, right? You, every single step along the way, you were planning, you were progressing, you were – ultimately, you were preparing, right? So every year that it wasn't quite time for the Arnold to come to Australia, you were still running the shows, running the expos, Trying to figure well, out how a, to do that, this better. Part of that, that to jump better. in, but part of that is your vision evolving. Yes. Because your vision does change. And you go, you know what? I can do this bigger and better. Thank God I didn't get my shot in 2012. And I wouldn't have been truth. ready. Yeah. You know, and this is where a lot of people that are impatient, they go, oh, I never got my shot. I go, maybe that's the world looking out for you. Yeah. Because if I had got my shot early on in a lot of things, I would have fucked them up. Uh-huh. I, I know that. You know, and like when I emceed the Arnold in Columbus, man, it was the greatest day. Honestly, people say, what's been there? Probably two things that I've – one was the first time we did the Arnold in in Melbourne. I guess goosebumps even talking about it. Yeah. When we sold out the plenary theatre, there was 5,000 people in there. And I got to say, because no one believed Arnold was coming, right? And I remember the, when I met him at the airport and all the news crews and everything were there and I'm, I'm just chuffed. I'm just like a big kid just going, fucking, how good is this? Having a little look at me moment. Right, but but the, the, the real thing um, and having my family there and your family, all of our families there, and for me to be the guy who got up on stage in Melbourne, in my hometown, I love Melbourne, got up and said, and I channeled Reg Park um, when he when I saw him that first time, I said, please welcome the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he walked out. Oh, man, I get emotional even talking about it. see your it's face. Like, yep. this, this just happened, you know. Yeah. It was like everything I've ever worked for, everything I've ever believed in, everything I, I waited for and everything that no one believed could happen just happened. And everyone's here to witness it. How good is this, you know. And then the other one was when, um, uh, I got to MC the Arnold in Columbus, which was just just something I wanted to do. Just like if you're basketball, you want to play in the NBA. If you're football, you want to just get a game, f- f- Adelaide for Carlton, whatever. This was my my shot, you know. And I remember um, going backstage to do it and I went like two hours early and Sean, who was my production manager, he's like, come over a bit early. I know you – because I'd travel with Sean all over the world and he's like, 
oh, I've never seen you nervous before. He goes, you're, you're real edgy. He goes, just come over a bit early. He goes, we've got a, um, a green room backstage. There's a bunch of food there. There's drinks. There's, you know, whatever you want to have, coffee. Um, I'll get you wired up. We'll get. And I remember I walked into the um, the venue in, in Columbus, Ohio, and it was an empty auditorium. And I went and stood at the lectern and looked out at these 5,000, 6,000 seats or whatever it was and just took it in and just had a moment. I think you've got to have those little moments where you actually – it's not about anyone. That was probably as important as when I introduced him was me just standing at the lectern at the empty theatre going, wow, this is the biggest stage I could ever imagine being – and it's me, this kid from Bendigo who had this crazy vision and passion and – and you 20, got, and you 25 got, years in the making. Yeah, and you got your shot. And I, st- I felt like a little kid. I'm like, you got your shot, kid, let's do this, you know. And um, and I remember it was a different game too because I was all wired up. I had earpieces, I had production crews and TV and yeah, so many movements and moving parts. And it, it's more even con- compared to your running shit, it's like um, uh, 700. Yeah. Someone introduces Tony. Seven zero zero and fifteen seconds. Tony introduced it. Yeah, um, uh, I remember you, you, you showing me when uh, uh, the, the first few Arnold's I did the uh, Australian Supplement Awards yeah. at the plenary at the Pro Bodybuilding, and I remember you showing me the running sheet, and you were like, "Joseph, you have twelve minutes and eleven seconds, and that's it. Yeah, and if you're not uh, done, well, you know." And I thought, we, I thought we, we were we were set raising <laughs> yeah. the bar with that shit. Man, when I got yeah. to Columbus, and yeah. I saw that was crazy. You know, and, and I thought, well, I'm just going to put my stamp on it. So they gave me all these notes. And I remember the old MC who'd done it for years. It was boring, mm-hmm. you know, but what he'd do, he'd, every competitor, he'd tell their life story. So our next competitor is Joseph Mansell. He went in uh, Mr. New Jersey when he was 12, took fourth place. <laughs> Five minutes later, yeah, he took third in the Ironman in 2011. I'm like, I, I ripped it all up. Yeah. And I go, what are you doing? I go, well, Arnold hates the show running late. I can take half an hour off the show by eliminating that bullshit mm-hmm. and putting my hype on it. Like, what do you mean? I go, Something like, from Adelaide, Australia, please welcome Joseph Mensah. You know, and, and I just put my thing into it and they go, wow, no one's done that before. And I remember Arnold coming up on stage and he, he came up actually with Franco Colombo and uh, we gave out an award when Franco died that year. And here I am backstage at the Arnold Classic with Franco and Arnold and Arnold goes, you're the best MC we've ever had. You killed it. You're unbelievable. Franco, have you met this guy? And yeah. I, I just had this little pinch yourself little moment. I walked out and trying to dry my eyes and go, fucking keep your shit together, big fella. Yeah. Like you you wanted this, you better be fucking good. I remember that first five minutes when I got all wired up and all that. And I walked out and I go, I'm actually fucking nervous. I'd never get nervous. I'm like, I'm not nervous in Australia, but this is this Next is level. This is something else. And it took me, I reckon, about two minutes. And the shakes went out of my voice and I got that you know, country confidence back. And I'm like, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, what are you about this? Hey, how good are you? And just started doing a little comedy and just threw my um, spin on it. And I remember afterwards Arnold literally rushed up um, backstage just to just to come give me a hug and congratulate him and go, fuck, man, you lit that up. That's entertainment. Mm. And I always said, man, we're going to make pure bodybuilding entertainment because we can't be boring anymore. There's too much going on out there. So that's, that's how all that happened. But, yeah, there's a little story of some highlights and some patience. You mentioned um, taking one step forward, taking two steps back, taking one step forward, taking three steps back, taking one step forward, taking four steps back. And that, you know, it's it's one thing. And once again, it kind of ties back into 
being put on a pedestal, right? One thing to talk about all of the wins and the highlights and the emceeing this and bringing the Arnold to Australia and all of those incredible moments where it all comes together. But there have been moments in your journey where you have had to take big steps back, uh, incredible steps back, and your grit has been tested and your resilience has been tested and your passion has ultimately been tested. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that you've been through a divorce. Um, so have I uh, in our personal lives. I remember we were on stage in 2020 and I flew over to Perth to uh, co MC the Perth show yep. in 2020. And the reason why I did that was because you were going to the Arnold to go MC the Arnold in 2020. And I wanted to get some more MC experience in Perth so that I could come back to Adelaide and run the Adelaide show. Because I wasn't going to be there. Because you weren't going to be there. And I remember we were talking backstage and um, uh, you were like, there's this, uh, there's this virus going around. And, you know, we're not really sure what effect it's going to have on, uh, on the Arnold USA. We're not sure what effect it's going to have here in Australia. And we were kind of just talking about, you know, like how is this going to play out? And that was two weeks before lockdown started, borders got closed, um, and effectively the world went into fucking meltdown. That's how COVID started. And over the next couple of years, uh, Melbourne, which is where you're based, which is where your businesses are based, was the most lockdown city in the world. You couldn't open any of your gyms. Uh, you couldn't run any expos. You couldn't run any bodybuilding shows. Effectively, everything that you had put the last 20, 25, 30 years of your professional career into was ripped out from underneath you. How on earth did you find the grit, the resilience to keep going? Well, I, I don't think you have a choice sometimes. Mm. You know, you either, I've always had this thing, Joseph, that when you've got to make a hard decision in business, life or anything else, it always comes down to two things, left or right, black and white, up or down. Like when you break all the bullshit down, we, you know, and I've got a big staff for the expos and stuff, we'd argue sometimes and go, all right, listen, it might be about firing someone. Mm. At the end of the day, it's going to be yes or no. So without all the fluff, I already know which way this is going to go. He can't survive, he's got to go. So we sit there and talk backwards for an hour, but when it comes down, it's, it's this or that. And I think with that, it's like that sink or swim. So what are you going to do? Mm. And it, it was it was really confronting and difficult for all of us, you know, like because it, it was kind of like, it was like death by a thousand cuts. Like they're like, oh, you're going to have to shut your gym for a week. Ah, that's not so bad. You're going to have to shut for three weeks. Cool, we'll do some renos. You know, so I've always had this um, thing and I think I said really early on in our chat that you, the lessons you learn from the hard stuff are always preparing you for something else. Mm -hmm. So I think everything I'd been through in my life prepared me for that, you know. And I remember when I had the gym and I had nothing and I always had this saying, which I always talk about in my seminars and stuff, which is focus on what you can do, not what you can't do, right, because you can always do something. Or you say, okay, I want, to, um, I want to put a mezzanine floor in. Hmm, haven't got any money. Hmm, what can you do? Buy a can of paint, paint the walls, they need a paint. You know what I mean? Move the equipment around. I remember, I remember the early days of the gym, I'd move all the all those black and white pictures and I'd move them. So people come in at night and go, oh, what's different in here? Because I always wanted to be doing something. 
or I couldn't afford treadmills in the early days. I didn't have any cardio. So I'd go buy an $80 can of paint. I'd paint a whole wall in a day and I'd stay all night and keep going until it was done. But walk in and go, geez, that looks good. I'm good. Focus on what you can do. Can't do that. Can do that. So with COVID, I, I think initially I thought, well, good. We've always wanted to like do insulation at the gym. I thought we'll polish the concrete floors and move stuff around. But then the reality kicks in. You got no money. You're like, sure, I've got no income. Um, I've got no idea when this is going to end. I, I've got an expo that I just um, had to postpone. So I'll give you an idea with the Arnold. Um, so I went to. Columbus, I had my dad, Brian, my son, Jesse, for the first time we're going to take them both to Columbus to see me MC the show. And we're in the airport and someone called and go, turn on, um, they sent me the link, um, such and such news in Columbus. So I'd gone, the first come up on my phone was Fox News and I got Columbus um, CBLC or whatever was the local station. And they're talking about we're going to have to shut down the fitness expo because of this this Chinese virus. They were calling it Chinese virus at the time. And there's a big chance we're going to talk to the governor soon and I'm better get on a plane. So I called Bob Lorimer. I went, what the hell's going on? He goes, look, I think we're going to be okay. He goes, worst case, we're going to run all the sports and we just won't be able to have the big expo, but the bodybuilding go ahead. I said, well, we're in the lounge. He said, get in the plane, just come. We'll figure it out. So while we're flying there, I had internet access for like the first four hours and then we lost lost things. So it wasn't until I landed in Los Angeles and someone sent me this other link and here's Arnold on TV, unbeknown to the promoters, who's gone ahead and said, look, we're just going to have to cancel the expo. It's not safe. Mm-hmm. And the time I got there, we've walked into a shitstorm. And then I'm like, well, we're two weeks away in Melbourne and the Formula One Grand Prix is the week before. I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to be okay. So luckily they, they still allowed the um, Arnold Classic uh, professional bodybuilding to go ahead. So I got to MC for the second time in front of um, my son, Jesse, and my dad, which was a really special moment for me, you know, and I got to bring them up on stage after the – I'd never do it during the show because I think that's just too self-whatever. But when the show was done, I said, come up, get a picture in front of the thing, you know. That was pretty cool. So we flew back into the unknown, got back home, and I thought – what can happen? We're going to be all right. You know, and I still remember I got in the treadmill on the next Friday. We got back on the Tuesday. The next Friday morning I'm on the treadmill and I'm watching the TVs and they're letting everyone into the Formula One Grand Prix in Melbourne. And I saw like 10,000 people walking into the gates. I'm like, shit, we're next week. We're going to be okay. Australia, this hasn't hit here yet. We're going to be fine. As I was getting off the treadmill, I saw all these security people come out of the Grand Prix and walk everyone back out the gate. And they said, it's over. We're not going to have crowds at the Grand Prix. This is a week before our event. Oh, my God. And this is when we're halfway through all the qualifying events. Like you said, we had you in Perth. You did a great job at the Adelaide show while I was away. Got back. So the week before the Arnold was meant to go ahead, it was still going ahead. Now, remember, I've had eight full-time staff on for 12 months. I've done all the Triple M ads. I've done all the billboards. I've done all those crazy street posters around Melbourne. Everything's done. The money spent, all the Facebook ads, the Instagram ads, all done. And I still don't know if it's going ahead. And people are starting to get jumpy, you know, and and, and the top of that, the pressure for me. At one stage I had uh, uh, it was 16 or 19 pros in nine international airports calling me saying, should we get on a plane or not? This is like a week out. So I've got the weight on my shoulders. I'm like, shit, I don't want to make a call on this because I'm the incurable optimist. We're going ahead. We're going ahead. And I'm ringing everyone I can in the government. I'm ringing everyone I can um, at the convention centers and everything else. Um, but everyone, just wait, just wait. And the one who couldn't wait, unfortunately, was Big Rami. Mm-hmm. And I'm indebted to him for life because 
Um, he said he didn't do the Columbus, but he said, I'm going to go and do Arnold Australia because I promised Tony I would. And he had to leave Kuwait and they had this thing, if you leave Kuwait on this final plane, on this final day, it was a Sunday night, you can't come back for a month no matter what because we want to see what happens with this thing. So he calls me from the plane, Mr. Donny, Mr. Donny. He said, if this plane take off, I'm stuck in Dubai for at least one month. If I can't come to Melbourne, I'm leaving my wife and kids. What do I do? I said, we've got to make a call. I'm going to be optimistic. Stick to it. All right, I got you. Timing lands in Dubai, we'd been cancelled. So during that day, I was in Sydney doing the Sydney show, which was a qualifier for the Arnold. And I'm on stage and Mark Gretsch was there with me and I said, Mark, just be ready. If my phone rings, I have to take a call. I, I'm just as ner- I'm, I'm just so wound up. You just take over the MC. Four o'clock, phone rings. It was the um, general manager of the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre and he called me. He said, listen, it's over. We're padlocking the doors at midnight tonight. He said, but don't don't call it off. He said, because if you... If it's a thing called force majeure, which is force of nature, he goes, we have to give you your money back. He said, off the record, wait till midnight. So now I know, can't say anything, um, but I don't get the money back for all the staff and everything else. Of course, yeah. It's been so that five-minute phone call, I lost $860,000. Yeah. Gone. And then I'm like, I rang all you guys and go, shit, what are we going to do? I said, we've, we've just had five qualifying events for our Australian athletes and I'm allowed to give out a pro cards. We've got to find a way. So then, I, you know, if I've got a project, I'm okay. So instead of me focusing on all the money I'd lost and all the expos off and all the athletes fucking stuck in airports, I'm like, right, we're going to do this Australian Pro. So none of the venues were available. Everyone's locked up. We At one stage, I'd, I'd uh, put a deposit on a semi-trailer and ordered a lighting rig to do it in the car park at the gym because they said outdoor events are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Then they said you can have 100 people inside, but then no venue would rent as a venue even for 100 people. And I found that warehouse, remember? Out in some suburb yeah. and we, we, I said, how are you going to do it? I go, we're going to do it like one of those underground dance parties where we don't tell anyone the name of the venue till the night before. Yeah. So we spent 48 hours nonstop around the clock. No one slept setting this venue up. We turned it from this dank old warehouse into this black theatre with 200 TV screens for the backdrop. This guy did an incredible job and he was a guy that was going to do our sound and lighting for the Arnold. And we managed to pull it off um, the Australian Pro Qualifier. And I'm like, at least we didn't let the bodybuilders down because that's where my heart is. So it took the focus away from the loss and the impact it was having on me personally. Yeah. Went home that night, fuck it. So I lit up a cigar in the balcony, vodkas or whatever, and and uh, one of my mates rings and says, turn your TV on right now. Turn the TV. So I think Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, saying, as of 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, all fitness centres must close. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening. A couple of things to round out. Firstly, if you've yet to subscribe to the Fitness Times Business Podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, make sure you do that right now so you don't miss any future episodes. Secondly, if you guys took some value from this episode, the one thing we ask in return is that you share the show. And finally, if you've yet to leave us a five-star rating, make sure you do that before the next episode.